Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Susan, uh, as I do all the time, I thank my listeners uh, over the years, gathering many more listeners from throughout the world, all of you out there who take the time to listen to these podcasts and learn from our authors. Uh, I truly, truly appreciate you. And today, joining from Boston, Massachusetts, is Susan, Susan David, PhD. Um, Susan has a book out, and it's newly released, called Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Um, Susan, good day to you. How are you doing? I am excellent. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. Well, we appreciate having you on Inside Personal Growth and speaking with uh, my listeners about getting unstuck and embracing change. This is always a topic that everybody has interest in, and they're always interested in learning more about what you can impart and ways in which they can apply things in their lives. But I'm going to let them know a little bit about you, Susan. Uh, Susan David's a PhD in psychology. She's a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, the co-founder and coordinator of the Institute of Coaching, at McLean Hospital and CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology, a boutique business consultancy. She's an in-demand speaker and advisor. Uh, Susan has worked with the senior leadership of hundreds of major organizations, including the United Nations, Ernst & Young, and the World Economic Forum. Her work has been featured in numerous publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Time, Fast Company, and Wall Street Journal. Uh, she's originally from South Africa, and she lives outside of Boston, as I mentioned, with her family. If you want to learn more about her, you can go to SusanDavidVerySimple.com or Facebook.com forward slash SusanDavidPhD. You can find her on Twitter, which all of these links will be put into the blog at Twitter.com forward slash SusanDavid underscore PhD. Well, Susan, you know, we could start this off, really, because you start your book off with a very personal story. Uh, You grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and when you were growing Mm -hmm. up in South Africa, um, you had what sounded like maybe some pretty strict parents, and your mother always told you, do not cross the street. You were given implicit (laughs) instructions never to do that. Um, yet you you broke the rules. Um, can you tell the story and how this relates to being hooked, as you call it in the book? Because this is the first part that you start the book is really around being hooked. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great place to start. So as you remark, I grew up in uh, South Africa. And when I was growing up, it was actually in apartheid South Africa. And while I was a white South African and therefore not subject to so much of the chaos and cruelty as so many of my fellow South Africans, it was nonetheless a time of uh, complexity for many, many people. And so I start emotional agility talking about this context and especially, you know, one little example that I give is something that I think is really a metaphor for what we do in our lives. And it's this just memory that I have, which as a little child, I was five years old, and I was angry with my mother. She had said something or done something, and I was angry with her. And I declared that I was going to run away from home. So I did what any five-year-old runaway might do. I took my little ladybird clogs, 
and I put them on my feet and I got some peanut butter and bread and I decided that I was going to leave home. Now, my parents had drummed into me because we lived in a relatively unsafe area and on a very, very busy street that I was under no circumstances to ever cross the street by myself. So I proceeded to do what most five-year-old runaways might do who are under instructions not to cross the street. And I walked then around the block because I got to the corner, couldn't cross the street and decided to turn. So I walked around the block and I walked around the block again and I walked around it again. And a couple of hours later, I finally exhausted, returned home uh, to my parents. I found out later that they'd actually been following me some, somewhat behind. Um, but I'd effectively walked around the block for hours. Now, I use this in emotional agility as a metaphor for how we so often get hooked in lives. And really what I mean by hooked is that our thoughts, our emotions, our stories drive us. Uh, They lead us around the block in our own lives time and time again and often stand in the way of our growth and our effectiveness in our lives. So very often we'll have thoughts like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not cut out for this career, or I want a present parent, or you know whatever it is for us, our fears, our, our stories about ourselves. And so often what we do in our lives is we respond to these thoughts, emotions, and stories. They drive our behaviors rather than our values, rather than our intentions, rather than who we really want to be in terms of how we love, live, parent, and meet. Are you there? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, yep. You faded out. We'll have to edit that part out so you can go on. For some reason, you just completely faded. That's so weird. What, where did I say that? Mm, you could start. But did you hear me say <laughs> love, love, parent, and lead? Yeah. So why don't you start from there? So do you want me to start? Um, uh, so we often well, let our well, thoughts, we... our emotions. Go, go ahead and start from there. We often, why okay. don't you do it there? We're going to have to edit all this out. So just start. Right That's where fine. you said okay. our thoughts. Great. So we often let our thoughts, our emotions, our stories drive us rather than our intentions, our values, and how we truly want to be in the way we love, live, parent, and lead. Interestingly, so now what you have talked about here is this hook And it's part of this, you know, unconscious frequently that's going on that has supplanted itself. And it's the story we tell ourselves and keep telling ourselves that we believe. And you talk about four common hooks in the book. Can you tell the listeners what those hooks are and how, if you're advising people as a psychologist, some of the best ways to break free from those hooks? Absolutely. So one of the books that I talk about is how we get stuck in stories that we tell us. For example, uh, one leader that I worked with was very stuck in 
the idea that uh, she had worked in an organization where she shouldn't really be authentic. So she had worked as a trader on Wall Street and she felt that people wanted a particular kind of leader. And when she then moved into a different organization, what she found is that that organization no longer required really that kind of leader. They wanted someone who was able to be much more authentic and inspiring. And yet she was stuck in the story, this way that really, you know, didn't um, work for her any longer. So one of the very important things about getting hooked is that sometimes stories or ways of being work for us at one point in our lives. For example, when we were a child, um, we might have found a way of being in a family or being, you know, part of a unit that might have worked for that time. So we might have shut down or we might have learned not to show particular emotions. And yet that may not serve us um, at a different point in our lives. So this is really this idea that we get stuck in, you know, old, overgrown ideas. Um, another way that I talk about being hooked is where we use what I call thought blaming. So thought blaming is where we say, I had a thought and I then acted upon the thought as if the thought were fact. So for example, um, I didn't mingle at the party um, because I thought I'd embarrass myself or I thought that the person in the meeting was undermining me, so I shut down. Or um, I was angry that my husband was bringing up the finances again, and I thought, there he goes again, so I walked out the room. In all of these cases, what we're doing is we are giving enormous power to our thoughts. And you can see based on our definition, which is being hooked, is that our thoughts drive our action. In all of these cases, we're treating our thoughts as fact, we're blaming our thoughts for our action, and they becoming dominant rather than our values, who we really want to be as a leader, who we really want to be in a relationship. So that's the second way that we get hooked. A third way that I talk about is what I call monkey-mindedness. And it's really this idea that we get so stuck in... Uh, who we are and what's going on and our upsets and our worries and our concerns that we are not actually living in the present moment. So we might be stressed about something that's going on at work and worried about the email that might come through. And what that does is it actually takes us away from the very precious time that we've got with our child who is now in front of us uh, at the dinner table, for example. So monkey-mindedness is another way that we get hooked. And then the last hook that I talk about is what I call wrong-headed righteousness. And this is the idea that we get so hooked often on being right that we forget to be effective. So we've all had that experience where, you know, we may be fighting with our spouse or our partner and you're having this big argument and finally calm descends on the house and you decide you're going to bed. And then something compels you as you are turning out the light one last time to tell the person why they were wrong and you were right and all chaos right. breaks loose again. And so often as human beings, we become focused 
on being right. You know, I am so stuck on developing this particular product that I'm ignoring all of my customer feedback. Or I'm so focused on the fact that my brother said something to me that was hurtful five years ago, and I can no longer even remember what that thing is. All I know is that I am right and he is wrong, and I've forgotten how to bring other parts of myself, my values, what I truly aspire to, my connections to the situation. So as human beings, we have this tendency, um, but it's a very, very typical way that we can become the opposite of emotionally agile. We become emotionally rigid and act in ways that ultimately don't serve us. What I love is that old saying, Susan, uh, that said, would you rather be right or would you rather be in love? And I I think that frequently uh, people try and be right so much that it does actually uh, ruin relationships uh, tremendously. And that what you just talked about was something that ruins relationships probably more than anything. Uh, It pits people at one another all the time. Now, you know, in your chapter on showing up, you reference the famous Joseph Campbell in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And for most of my listeners, they're going to know that book. And I know the book's a classic. And that in the book, uh, uh, Dr. Campbell discusses the archetypes. Um, Can you explain how these archetypes show up in our lives and the importance uh, in treating ourselves, as you talk about in this chapter, with more self-compassion, more willingness and learning from our thoughts and our emotions. Absolutely. So a really critical aspect of becoming more emotionally agile is for us to recognize that our thoughts are thoughts and our emotions are emotions. Um, But who's in charge here? You know, the thinker or the thought? Who's in charge? The emotion or me, the person who's big enough and able to ultimately experience all of my emotions. Um, And absolutely, you know, what happens in the movies is we get hooked into a plot and it keeps us on the edge of our feet and drives the whole scenario and the whole narrative forward. And in the same way, the hooks that I described earlier um, can become woven into stories that we tell ourselves. You know, we might tell ourselves that we just would love to do a particular career or to move into a particular space in our work life, but we're just not cut out for it. Or that we would deserve something more, or we would love to have something more in our personal relationships, but, you know, there are no good people out there, for example. And so what we can start to do is we can start to create these narratives and effectively these myths in our own lives that feel very comfortable because we're so used to them. We might have been telling ourselves these since we were children. And yet ultimately they truly hinder our ability to be flexible and to be open and to move forward in ways that are meaningful to us. Now, Does that mean that we simply say, well, you know, my story is wrong or, you know, I'm I'm fearful about applying for this job, but I shouldn't be fearful. Let me just, you know, ignore that fear or let me just ignore that thought. So the answer is no. 
Uh, my background is as an emotions researcher. So I did my PhD in emotions and a postdoc at Yale in emotions research. And what's really interesting is that we live in a society that tells us that we should conquer our fears or that our thoughts mean everything. You know, if you have a thought, it's going to create your reality. And therefore, these thoughts become imbued with so much gravitas. And yet one of the things that I talk about uh, in emotional agility is firstly how to be effective with these thoughts in a way that is science-based rather than necessarily um, driven by our culture. But one of the other things that I talk about, which you allude to in your question, is the critical importance of self-compassion, bringing self-compassion and curiosity to our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. Because we live in a world that would have us believe that we are in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition. And that somehow being kind to yourself is the equivalent of being lazy or dishonest to yourself. And yet the research shows the opposite. The research shows that when people are going through difficult transitions, so for example, a divorce or a setback at work, that when they bring kindness to their experience, recognizing that they are doing the best with who they are, with what they've got, with the situation that they find themselves in, that those individuals actually ultimately do better. They land up being more honest with themselves. They're not lazy. They're more motivated and they have better outcomes. So self-compassion is something that often seems woozy and fluffy, but is a critical way of being with ourselves in a way that allows us to be agile and effective in our lives for good when things are going well, as well as when things are going poorly. It makes perfect logical sense that if you would spend more time having self-compassion, obviously that you would be able to manage more difficult situations in your life easier because as they come along, it becomes a lot easier um, when you're kind to yourself and you're kind to others to be able to do that. I mean, very logical conclusion to to your study. Now, you cite in your chapter on stepping out that you told this story about James Penbaker, a distinguished professor at the University of Texas. Shortly after his marriage, I mean, it wasn't very long, he started to question his marriage and his life in general. And then he started writing. Um, he started writing a lot. Can you tell our listeners what happened to him and the reverse in his life? And also, what are some of the steps for stepping out, as you call it in your book? Absolutely. And there's a little bit of a backstory to that James Pennebeck example that I give. Um, you know, really, when I think about emotional agility, I really love that remarkable quotation by Viktor Frankl, which is this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. So that idea was yeah. you know, alluded to Viktor Frankl, who, of course, survived the Nazi death camp. And when we are hooked, what we're doing is we are being driven 
by our thoughts and emotions, and there's no space between stimulus and response. So a key aspect of creating emotional agility is to be able to notice your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories in a way that is compassionate and curious, um, but also allows you to not be so embroiled and embedded in them that you don't have any perspective. So in Stepping Out, what I talk about in very practical ways is how to generate the capacity to step out, both in the moment, you know, you're sitting in a meeting and you're feeling frustrated and you're feeling undermined, um, but also with larger stories or experiences or traumas or hurts that we've had in our lives. So the backstory to this is really that when I was a, a teenager living in South Africa, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was given months to live. And it was a really traumatic and difficult experience for me. What was fascinating is that on the one hand, I had all my school friends, teachers, uh, you know, my, my parents' friends saying things like, just be positive. It'll be okay. You know, just be hopeful. Um, everything's going to be fine. But, you know, the reality is that it wasn't fine. Um, life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. And um, we can try to pretend things are fine, but we will all at some stage experience loss or trauma or breakups or setbacks or being laid off and so on. So on the one hand, I had all of these people saying, you know, ignore it, everything will be okay, kind of. And then I had this remarkable, remarkable English teacher who invited us to keep journals. And every day I would write about my experience of effectively, you know, watching my father die and then my time after he was dead, my regrets, my um, sense of loss, my loneliness, all of those difficult experiences. What I realized afterwards is it was that. It was that showing up and then being able to notice and integrate my story through writing that made the difference in terms of my long-term resilience. It wasn't the narrative, that tyranny of positivity around, you know, just be positive, everything's going to be okay. So I became very curious then about what is it that actually allows us to be resilient and effective in the context of a life where its beauty is inseparable from its fragility. And so that spurred on my career, my interest in emotions. And now circling back to your question, um, one of the key people who's done work in some aspects of how to create the space between your thoughts and emotions and then how you act is James Pennebaker. So James Pennebaker was going through a very difficult time in his uh, marriage. He married very young and was starting to question it, and he became deeply depressed. He's a professor now, um, but at the time he was 18 years old and, you know, had gotten married and was now second guessing. And he fell into a very, very deep depression. And what happened over a period is that he started to write 
you know, he would go to his typewriter and he would write just for little bits each day about what he was going through. And what he found after this writing is that his depression actually lifted and he had a far greater sense of clarity around his life, his love, his relationship. You know, 40 years later, he's still married to to his wife, Ruth. Um, But it was this remarkable personal experience that he had in the same way that I had had when I was younger. And mm-hmm. essentially what happens from this work is we've now got hundreds, literally hundreds of studies that have come out through this body of work showing that when you firstly don't just ignore your difficult experiences, but actually kind of show up to them and start putting those experiences in language. You label what you're going through or you write about what you're going through, that it is incredibly powerful. And for example, Mm -hmm. in James Pennebaker's studies, what we find is that people who write for 20 minutes a day for three days, six months later, have higher levels of well-being, lower levels of depression and anxiety, um, but also they've moved ahead in practical ways. They've gotten jobs or they've um, changed careers in really specific practical ways through that writing experience compared to people who, for example, just wrote about nonsense for the 20 minutes, three days, rather than something that was emotionally salient. So really what I talk about in this chapter, and this is just one example, is very practical ways of how we can come to ourselves such that we can process small and big difficulties in ways that are very healthy and productive in terms of moving forward in our lives. I think it's just so uh, right, spot on. Many of my listeners already know that uh, in 2005, I got a degree from uh, USM in spiritual psychology. And one of the techniques that was used was this, um, was journaling. And it was journaling every day and it was journaling all the time, just like you're talking about. But more importantly, even in the things that stick us up in the past, to write about them, read them, and then burn them. And um, I can't tell you the clearing that actually occurred for me as a result of the technique that you're talking about. And I would advocate to all of the listeners out there today, um, as Susan is talking about, this is can be one of the most powerful things that you do for yourself um, to clear blockages that you have um, that are in your subconscious about stories you've been telling yourself about you're not enough or somebody's done something to you um, that's blocking you. So I highly encourage that. Now, Susan, you tell this story in the chapter on moving on. You discuss this concept of creating a new outlook and tweaking our mindset. And in the process, you tell the story from Alda Crum and the study that she conducted on these 84 female hotel cleaners. Um, Can you speak about that, if you would, and tell us what actually happened and how this relates um, to getting unstuck? Absolutely. So really the idea behind this chapter on moving on, on moving forward, is that you know often when we think about making a change in our lives, we think about change as being 
massive. It needs to be big. It needs to be inspirational. It needs to be an entire career change. Or, you know, we need to sell up and move to France. Um, but what's really interesting is when you look at the research in this area is the research actually shows that it's often very subtle changes, what I call tiny tweaks that can make a very meaningful difference to people. So, for example, let me ask this question of listeners. Um, you know, if you were rating on a scale of one to five, do you disagree or agree with a couple of questions? Um, disagree or agree, you know, as I get older, my life will get worse. Um, as I get older, I'm destined to become more lonely. So you can see these kinds of questions are really questions about mindset, you know, it's mindset around aging. And what we know in large-scale studies is that, you know, I don't mean just answering, you know, one or two questions like that, but when people have a particular expectation about aging, it actually, over time, controlling for other health factors, um, pre-existing heart disease, you know, blood pressure, cholesterol, and so on, can actually become predictive of mortality. So what's fascinating here is these, these stories that we often hold about what I expect of my life, what I expect in the future, can then feed into whether we do exercise, whether we go out, whether we um, move in new and interesting ways into experiences that keep us engaged and so on. So now to get to the study. So this particular study just was focusing on a very specific but very interesting aspect of mindset. And it was, again, this idea that we can have specific expectations, but if we tweak those expectations, that it can be very powerful. So what the researchers did is they went into uh, hotels. And, mm -hmm. of course, Cleaners in hotels often are bending and lifting and making beds and, you know, often 15 rooms a day. They're spending hours and hours and hours exercising. Um, but most of them, if you say to them, you know, do you exercise enough? Many of those individuals would say, no, you know, we don't. I'm at work. I don't have time for exercise. Um, because they don't see themselves necessarily as going for a run or going to the gym. And so they would say no to that question. So all the researchers did, and I say all because it was such a simple and elegant piece of research, is in one hotel they tweaked people's mindsets. And they basically put information on a bulletin board to say, did you know the exercise that you do every day as part of your job actually meets the Surgeon General's requirements for healthy living. So they put that in one hotel and in the other hotel they didn't include that information. And what they found after a number of weeks when they went back and they measured things like body mass index and you know, literal markers of physiological health is that the people who had shifted their mindsets now recognizing that they were actually doing exercise and that that exercise was good and it was helpful had shaved off pounds 
um, had, you know, improved physical markers relative to the people who hadn't received that information. So again, what this research shows, and then I talk about in um, emotional agility, how we can adopt and adapt these kinds of mindsets in our own lives, is that there's a powerful impact of what we believe. Now, it's not because what we believe is the be all and end all. It's because often what we believe will, per my conversation earlier, um, or per our conversation, will often shape then our actions, what we put our hand up for, what we don't. So interesting. And, you know, obviously with you doing all the research you have um, and, and compiling it into emotional agility, and I think in your trailer you say this, you know, it's about the gap between our intentions and our reality. And what this book does for my listeners is it helps you close that gap um, between those intentions and reality. And Susan, it's been a pleasure having you on Unsaid Personal Growth. I didn't even get to uh, half of the questions that I had created, but the reality is, is that for anybody out there who is looking to get unstuck, to embrace change, to thrive in work and life, uh, emotional agility is going to give you um, some new ideas, new techniques to apply to your life. And it's been a pleasure having you on our show. Uh, for all of my listeners, if you want to learn about Susan, you can go to www.susandavid.com. We'll be putting all those links. And Susan, you said you had a quiz that you'd like to give to our listeners. Um, how do they get to that quiz so they can learn more about that? Absolutely. So the quiz is very quick. It's a five-minute free quiz. And from that, people get a 10-page report that's customized that is then emailed to them as a PDF. Uh, we've had about 40,000 people take that so far. And if your listeners are interested, they can find that quiz on Susan David, so S-U-S-A-N-D-A-V-I-D, susandavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N. Really easy. So we'll put that link in the blog entry as well. Susan, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending some of your time this morning imparting the wisdom and your knowledge um, about becoming more emotionally agile in life and at work, um, and also the opportunity to embrace change, which we're all doing every day of our lives, but learning how to do it better and better. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. 